Well, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. If you're my age, you will probably remember when the Ghostbusters movie hit the cinemas back in 1984 with the, uh, the awesome song by Ray Parker Jr. I know that they've done a remake. Nah, the original was the best. It, it, was, a, it was a fun movie. It was a, it was a movie that, uh, you know, kind of those fun movies about people who went around making a living scaring away ghosts or, or vacuuming them up in their backpacks or whatever they did. Uh, as they went around different haunted bu- buildings around New York City. And it, and it climaxed with, with a triumph of 1980s special effects. <laughs> as right on the very top of this building, there was, you know, lightning and all these different things, especially the 30-metre-tall, demon-possessed Marshmallow Man. It was a high point of mass entertainment. And the whole ghost thing was, was scary but fun, really. And I think, in a way, it was a bit like how a lot of people think of Halloween. Scary stuff that appears harmless and fun. But not all people think that ghosts are just creations from our imaginations. And that's certainly the case if a person's been scared by something from the paranormal. Or if somebody happens to have read the Bible. Because there are many times when the Bible speaks about ghosts... Like, for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 28, when Saul asks a psychic to consult a spirit or a ghost for him. And she calls up Samuel, who says, Why have you disturbed me by calling me back? Samuel asked Saul. Uh, there was a ghost. And don't try that at home if you're trying to, you know, just don't do that. But there are many other ghost stories in the Bible as well. And that's because ghosts are just spirits. They're spirits, they're evil spirits. And they appear all the time, especially during Jesus' ministry. And, for example, when Jesus cast out all those demons out of the man who was in the tomb, or the men in the tomb, they sounded a lot like ghosts, didn't they? And there were lots and lots of these paranormal kinds of things in the story of Jesus. They're spooky and they're scary, but basically they're just a normal part of life. And as we'll see today, people actually thought that Jesus was in control of ghosts, which is a bit funny, isn't it? Or that he himself was a ghost, which is even funnier again. After all, how could he do all these powerful and miraculous things? How could he command such a huge following of people? Surely there was something that was supernatural. Surely there was something that was maybe even paranormal. And with all of this, we are again forced to come up with an answer to the question, who do you think Jesus is? It's the question that must be answered. Is Jesus a psychic? Is he a magician? Is he a ghost? Who do you think Jesus is? It's a question you can't avoid as you read about him in the Bible, which is why it's such a good thing to read the Bible for yourself. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you're still kicking around the idea It's not rocket science. Just flip open to the New Testament. Matthew's good where we're at at the moment. Read a little bit, follow it through, and you'll get to meet Jesus face to face and see exactly who he is. But as you do so, you've got to ask yourself the question, who is this man? Well, as we begin looking at Matthew chapter 14 tonight, which is our chapter, we'll see how a very famous and powerful man had completely misunderstood who Jesus was. 
begins with verse 1. When Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, heard about Jesus, dot, 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 we'll get to the next bit in a moment, we see here that there's this guy, Herod Antipas. He's the son of the Herod who tried to kill baby Jesus at the start of Matthew's Gospel. He's the king of that whole region up the northern bit where Jesus is at the moment. And, well, he's heard about this Jesus guy and he's a bit worried about him. He's seen that this Jesus guy has started to attract lots and lots of followers. He's started to be able to do some miracles and, and he's even caused a bit of division amongst all the Jewish people. And with all of this, he has seen that Jesus was famous Jesus was powerful and Jesus was threatening. Those three things there are what Herod's worked out as he's heard about Jesus. So he's come up with a theory. He says in verse 2, he says this to his advisors, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. That is why he can do such miracles. So you've got to, you've got to get your head around this, right? This is the most powerful man in the whole region of Galilee. And he is you and for his explanation of how it is that this particular guy is able to do such amazing stuff, he says that he is using the spirits of John the Baptist. This powerful guy, this king, clearly believes in the supernatural world. And that was pretty normal in the first century. People knew there was more to life than what you could see and touch. They knew there was a supernatural dimension to life, an afterlife. It's not so common today, is it? At least publicly. In fact, if a politician or another leader shows themselves to be religious or spiritual, then they can expect to be mocked. Just like our new Premier was last month when he came to power. They went to town on the fact that he had a religious belief, like he was weird and he's the only guy around that does. But the idea of a spiritual world beyond the physical, this is normal and this is natural. You know, but some people will say, you know, now we've got science, we don't need God. You ever heard anyone say something like that now? Don't need God anymore because we've got science. Because we've got logical, reasonable reasons to explain the universe, we don't need to talk about you know, God and spooky stuff like that. It's the so-called, it's got a name for it, this thinking. It's the so-called God of the gaps way of thinking. Basically, it goes like this, right? If there's a gap in the knowledge of the universe, it's kind of like, do you know what that means? I don't know. Well, I don't know. It's a gap. All right, well, let's put the word God in there and we'll put God in the gap. And when you don't know much about science and stuff like that, there's heaps of gaps, there's huge gaps. And so there's lots and lots of God, 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 God everywhere. But when you get smart and you can get telescopes and microscopes and supercomputers, suddenly there are not many gaps left and therefore there's not much room for God left and so if you happen to be somebody who says you believe in God, it's like, oh, are you stupid or something? But it's interesting, isn't it, that, that in fact the majority of famous scientists also believe in God. Interesting, isn't it? You'd think if that was the case, they wouldn't. And those men and women aren't stupid. 
And what's more, the biggest question of them all is still not answered by atheists, and that is, how did the universe begin? Anyway, back to the story. And we see that Herod believed in the spiritual world, and he thought that Jesus' spiritual powers came from his magical ability to call on the spirit of the dead, John the Baptist. Herod thought Jesus was powered by John's ghost. Can you see that? But before we sort of think about what it might or might not mean for Jesus to call up John's spirit, we've got to find out how John died because that should come as a bit of a surprise to us if we've never read Matthew's Gospel before. Because the last time we heard about John was in verse, it was in chapter 4, verse 12, where he saw right back then that when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. We haven't heard anything more about John right up to now. But something has happened from that arrest that has led to the death that's reported in the chapter today. So what Matthew does is he does a bit of one of those flashbacks. If you're ever watching TV, sometimes they'll flick over to black and white or like it's a dream sequence or, it's a, or maybe they might put it inside another square or you, you know that it's not happening right now, it's a flashback. Uh, that's what we've got right here. It's a flashback at this moment. And so... We'll get this from verse 3 right down to the end of verse 12. All of this is a big flashback, which we'll have a look at at the moment. And then, in verse 13, we'll get back to the present moment that's happening right in the narrative there. So what happened to John the Baptist? It's a bit gruesome. You ready for it? Well, verse 3. We read that Herod had arrested and imprisoned John as a favour to his wife Herodias, who was the former wife of Herod's brother Philip. You heard that correctly, right? Some husbands buy their wives flowers or jewellery. But the way that Herod shows love to his wife is by getting this random bloke and throwing him into prison. Men don't try that. But the question is, why would he do that? What had John done to make Herod's wife so unhappy that he would want to put him in prison? Well, we read in verse 4 that John had been telling Herod, it is against God's law for you to marry her. Hmm. Basically, John the Baptist has been speaking out against Herod's immoral marriage. He's been going all fire and brimstone on Herod, saying, mate, you can't be married to your now divorced sister-in-law. You can't do that. It's a pretty gutsy move from John, I've got to say. In Australia, we almost consider it a bit of a badge of honour to bag out our leaders. You know, it's the kind, you know, the kind of abuse, for example, that our Prime Minister has received in office is really quite extraordinary, I think. I mean... As we saw a few years ago, people are kind of acting like he went around and personally lit, uh, personally lit all of the bushfires over 2019 and 2020. Oh, there was ScoMo there flicking matches at burning, you know, really? But in the first century, with the Romans ruling, you'd be pretty courageous and probably really quite, well, delusional if you thought you could preach against Herod and get away with it. That Herod would say, oh, well, that's just the media. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. And so Herod needs to shut him up. And so it's a convenient way is basically to get him put into prison. But I don't think it's necessarily the kind of thing that I would naturally be doing. 
I would naturally be speaking out against our politicians, especially if they're acting immorally in their personal life. There was a time when you didn't actually appear on the media if you had some sort of personal scandal amongst the politicians. Now, that seems to have changed now. And it's interesting to reflect upon 1 Corinthians 5, uh, where Paul says, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. That's quite interesting, I think. But John must have felt that his calling involved speaking out against even the top Roman ruler of the region. And how does Herod react? Well, we read that Herod wanted to kill John. But he was afraid of a riot because all of the people believed John was a prophet. <laughs> he thought, OK, well, I'd really like to get rid of him, but if I do kill him, then people will be, well, they'll go crazy, so I better not do that. So the answer was, let's throw him into prison. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll invite him to provide some assistance with our inquiries. Now, Herod silenced him. And he silenced John by imprisoning him. But how did he die? Because we knew we'd, that he'd been chucked into prison. How did that happen? Well, here's the plot twist. It's a bit gruesome, actually. Uh, just as well the, the joeys have gone over. It's you know, ruse. You'll be right with this. But, you know, for all of us, it's a bit gruesome. Because we read in verse 6, At a birthday party for Herod, Herodias' daughter... Sorry, I'll start again. But at a birthday party for Herod, Herodias' daughter performed a dance that greatly pleased him. So he promised with a vow to give her anything she wanted. Herod, he's having a really happy birthday party. He's getting totally into it. And his stepdaughter is doing a dance that he's really, really liking an awful lot. And he basically says, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Now, she might have thought, ooh, I'd love a sports car or something like that. But she thought, I'll just check with mum first. So she goes and checks with mum, and we read in verse 8 that at her mother's urging, the girl said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a tray. A sports car would have been much better, or a new iPhone or something like that, but here, the great John the Baptist, the man who Jesus has said there's no one greater, he is now a man who, well, is about to die. And you see that the king was a bit upset about the fact that this was asked for. He would have much preferred to get her a sports car or a, send her on a nice holiday. Because we read in verse 9 that the king regretted what he had said. But because of the vow he'd made in front of the guests, he issued the necessary orders. Now, he couldn't break his word. He couldn't say, oh, well, no, no, you can't have that kind of thing. It's like, well, you promised. And so, verse 10 and 11 John was beheaded in prison and his head was brought on a tray and given to the girl who took it to her mother. And that was the end of John's life. That's very, very sad. All because of a promise from a drunken king, one of the greats of history has now been shamed by having his head separated from his body and taken into the party. In the end, John was executed just for annoying the kids, king's wife. His preaching brought persecution, which brought his execution, and there was no justice. It wasn't the first time that an injustice like this happened, and it certainly wasn't to be the last. 
And then the final section of the flashback, we read verse 12, that later John's disciples came for his body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus what had happened. And that is the end of the flashback. That's when it goes from being black and white into colour, back into the action where you're at. It shows why it is that right now Herod is scared of Jesus. He's scared of Jesus because of what he's done to John. And he thinks because he's cut John's head off that John's actually turned into a ghost and now he's coming back and spooking out Herod. And Jesus is using him to scare Herod and all that sort of stuff. But how will Jesus react when he hears that Herod is spooked out by John's ghost or so-called ghost? Well, we read as we get back into the present time and away from the flashback, we see that as soon as Jesus heard the news about Herod, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. Basically, Jesus ran away from Herod. He got in a boat and travelled far away. He knew that Herod was going to be trouble for him, and so he left to be alone. But it didn't really seem to fix the problem. Jesus wanted a bit of a quiet time. He wanted a bit of time on his own. But we read in verse 13b that the crowds, when the crowds heard where he was headed, they heard and they followed on foot from many towns. You know, there wouldn't have been more people if they had Facebook and they posted it. It was kind of like everybody knew about it and suddenly they all turned up. Jesus just wanted a bit of time on his own and yet everybody is there. They're kind of... His news is not just being spread to the the kings. It's it's almost like he's being treated like a rock star. But Jesus didn't turn them away. Verse 14, Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat. What does it say there? And he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Jesus had compassion on the crowd, a big crowd. He reacted emotionally to him, to them. Do you see, that what, see what's happening there? Jesus is actually feeling something as he sees the people there. He sees them all there. He feels sad for them all there. He has empathy for them all there. And so what does he do? He heals them. This is the heart of Jesus. Compassion on those who need help. And he acts on that compassion. And it seems like he spent a lot of time doing that because, well, they came to a bit of a problem. Verse 15. That evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. (laughs) The disciples told Jesus two things that he would have already realised. Firstly, they're miles and miles from anywhere. And secondly, it's late. Which means, thirdly, They've got a catering problem. There's no food. They all need food. The disciples thought, we want the hungry crowd to go home. Go home, get your food, sort it out, and it won't be our problem. After all, the people didn't turn up thinking, I'm expecting dinner to be supplied by Jesus and his disciples. But I actually have had the experience uh, where I had a few people around for something and they all expected dinner and we weren't able to provide it. It was actually at a weekend conference for over 600 people. And we were running this in an auditorium at a large school. We'd ordered organised caterers. And fairly soon, fairly close to 6 o'clock, when everybody was expecting to be fed, 
News came that the gas ovens actually weren't working and all of the lasagna was still frozen. 600 people in a remote school and all of them had to hear that message from yours truly. Hi, everybody. Do you want to know the good news or the bad news? The good news is dinner is coming. The bad news is it's frozen and it's going to be two or three hours. And you could see in the crowd the ashen face. So we said, here's what we'll do. The thing we were going to do after dinner, after we've had a break and everything like that, we're going to do it right now. So everybody stand, let's get into it and we'll have dinner afterwards. And it's like you could see that their energy, their blood sugar levels were down and, and everyone's thinking, what kind of stupid conference is this where you invite us along, we pay you the money and you don't have any food for dinner? Which bit of dinner did you not get? They were unhappy campers, I can tell you. It was quite a night. And that is what the disciples wanted to avoid. So I feel, I feel a bit for them then. But Jesus said, oh, I've got the answer. He said to them, oh, don't send them home. You feed them. Oh, right. And they said, but we've only got five loaves of bread. And these are probably not even the big ones with 22 slices. They're probably just the little pita bread ones, right? And two fish. And these are probably not the kind of fish that, you know, Jono catches. These are kind of like the little tiny, tiny ones. And so they're just a couple of fish and five loaves of bread. But the problem is they know that there wasn't enough for everybody. So Jesus took control. Many of you have heard this story before, but hear it again. We'll race through it. Jesus said, bring them here, he said. So then he told the people to sit down on the grass. Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up towards heaven and he blessed them. And then breaking the loaves into pieces, he gave the bread to the disciples who distributed it to the people. And they all ate as much as they wanted and afterwards, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. About 5,000 men were fed that day, in addition to all the women and children. It's a great story. If you've never heard it before, you'd be thinking, wow. If you've been coming along to church for more than a week or two, you're probably thinking, yeah, yeah I, know, I know this one. I know this one. But don't lose that wow the moment you first heard it because it really is extraordinary. This miracle shows Jesus' power over the natural world. I mean, who does that? It's an amazing miracle. And it wasn't just 5,000 people. It was 5,000 men. So if each man had a family or at least a, you know, it could have been up to 20,000 people. That's a lot of people. But there's more to this than just being a healing miracle. I think that Jesus wants us to realise that Jesus is the shepherd of Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is a very, very famous psalm. Uh, here's the version of it we have in our Bibles in the New Living Translation. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my energy. Jesus provides all that we need. And just in case you missed it, there's a the little bit there about green meadows. You see that? Jesus before said, sit down on the grass. <laughs> there's a connection there. And if you read Mark's account of this, it, it's even up a notch. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a hmm, shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the shepherd. 
Jesus is the one in whom we have all that we need. Jesus is the one that lets us rest in green meadows. Jesus is the one who leads us beside peaceful streams. Jesus is the one who renews our strength. And this feeding miracle is the very thing that Herod was concerned about when he saw what Jesus was doing. Because not only does Jesus perform amazing miracles, Jesus is also the leader who leads with care and compassion. Well, right after dinner, Jesus moves everyone on. Verse 22, he says, immediately after this, Jesus insists that disciples, get in the boat, go back over to the other side of the lake. People, go home. And then after that, verse 23, after sending them all home, Jesus went up into the hills by himself to pray. And night fell while he was there alone. Jesus went away to pray. I don't know about you, but I, I find this intriguing. I sort of think, now isn't Jesus God? Yeah. Isn't he connected to the Father? Yeah. All of that, all of that. Why does he need to stop and pray? Uh, can't he just sort of like upload the prayers? Well, don't they have the same brain? All that kind of, I mean, you sort of think through, you know, why does he need to act? He's a busy guy. He's only around for a few years. He can do a bit more, you know, missionary sort of stuff. Why does he need to stop and pray like that? If he's powerful enough to turn a lunchbox into enough food to feed a stadium of people, why does he need to draw it down on the strength of God, the Father? Why does he need to do that? And part of the answer is because he's a human. He needed rest. He needed rejuvenation. And he knew the way that he recharged his human batteries was to spend time with his Father in heaven. It's not really rocket science, is it? But I've got to ask myself... If it's true that Jesus needed to pray, why is it that I sometimes think that I don't need to pray? You know, there's a, there's a thing happening. I'm a bit anxious about it. What am I going to do? Well, I'm going to try and do some stuff to make sure things don't break. Yeah, yeah, you do that. But why don't I stop and pray? Why do we naturally go into anxious mode? Why do we naturally go into stress mode? Why do we naturally go into all these other modes? Jesus is saying, well, you could follow my lead. I sit down and pray about it. You know, I don't just tell you to pray. I actually do it myself. You know, why don't I spend more time resting in my Heavenly Father's arms? Why do we turn to streaming services and social media to try and recharge? Do we really think that Jesus was only praying to his father because nobody invented Netflix and Facebook yet? And it's not about trying to guilt us into praying like it's some sort of religious duty. We should naturally want to spend time with our Heavenly Father like a newlywed wants to spend time on his honeymoon. But then this happens, verse 24. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land in that boat for a strong wind had risen and they were fighting heavy waves Uh, you might think they're in a big boat like a manly ferry they're not they're in a boat probably around about eight meters long and it's sort of like a rowboat kind of thing and the strong wind has made big waves and they're in trouble and then verse 25 about three o'clock in the morning jesus came toward them walking on the water Jesus has amazing control over the universe, over the creation. He he is showing as the true son of man, the true and better Adam, an ability to control creation. 
But his walking on water also shows that he is God with us, Emmanuel. Because, for example, there are various places in the Bible where we see that only God can walk on water. Like Job chapter 9, verse 8, He alone has spread out the heavens and marches on the waves of the sea. <laughs> he was fully human, but he alone could do what God could do. And it was stunning and it was scary. So much so, verse 26, that when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified and in their fear they cried out, It's a ghost! <laughs> they thought they saw a ghost. And I get that. I mean, Herod thought that Jesus was, talking, was calling on the ghost of John the Baptist for his power. And now the disciples think that Jesus himself is a ghost. But it's all fine. And Jesus says to them, look, don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. Actually, the, the literal translation is a little bit more like this. It says, take heart. I am do not fear. I am what? Well, this version says, I am here. But what, what, huh? Take courage. I am. Do not fear. Why would you just say, I am? It's like, haven't you missed out a word, Jesus? Uh-uh. Remember what the Lord said to Moses when there was the burning bush that didn't burn? Exodus 3. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. That's my name. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. You want to know what my name is? The Lord says, my name is I am. So when Jesus stands there on the water, he says to them, take heart, I am. What's he saying? He's saying he's the Lord. Jesus is saying, I am. Jesus is I am. That's why they don't need to fear him one little bit. That's why they shouldn't fear the waters. Because Jesus has conquered them all. But the connection with the Exodus doesn't stop there. Because it looks like Peter wants to walk through the waters. Almost like the people of God walking through the Red Sea. Verse 28, Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. And Jesus says, yeah, rightio, come, Jesus says. So Peter went over the side of the boat. I love Peter. He's... And he walked on the water towards Jesus. He knows he's not God, but he knows he's in the presence of God. And he knows that God can part the water like he did with the Red Sea. And he's thinking, well, the same sort of stuff's happening. But then verse 30, when he saw the strong wind and, and the waves, he was terrified. And he began to sink. And he shouted out, save me, Lord. Save me, Lord. He knew Jesus was Lord, but he still had doubts. He started to actually walk on the water, like I'm stamping here on the carpet. But then he looked around and he started to have doubts. Now I take it that it's possible to believe in your heart fully that Jesus is Lord, enough to jump out and start walking on water, but at the same time to have doubts. And that's exactly what we see here. And so Jesus reacts by reaching out and grabbing him. <laughs> he says, you have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? I think, oh, poor Pete. I mean, you did start walking, but Jesus is right. Why did, you, why did you give up? But Jesus just doesn't say, oh, well, 
Let's see how, how long he can stay underwater before you start swimming. What does he do? He reaches out and he grabs him. It's a beautiful picture. He grabs him. Jesus saved Peter when his faith was small. He had mercy on him when he showed his lack of trust. This is what our Saviour is like. This is what Jesus is like. He's got the power to heal people by saying a word. The power to feed a crowd with a lunchbox. The power to walk on water through a storm. The power to save people with a weak faith. Who is this guy? Well, verse 32, when they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Of course it did. And then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the son of God, they exclaimed. The disciples worshipped Jesus. That's what you're doing in the presence of God. And they said, you really are the son of God. They recognised him as the Messiah, the son of God, the one who came to save God's people from their sins. And then it ends with these verses, verse 34 to 36. They've, after they crossed the lake, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the people recognised Jesus, the news of his arrival spread quickly throughout the whole area and soon people were bringing all their sick to be healed. They begged him to let the sick touch at least the fringe of his robe and all who touched him were healed. <laughs> Jesus left that spot to get away and have a bit of time on his own and there's all those people and then they go back and there's even more people. The fame that brought the threat from Herod is now growing even more and Jesus was bringing real hope to all who came to him. Guys, you can't just look at Jesus like he's, a, he's just a character in a movie. You can't watch his life like you're a, at a theatre watching a play. When you see Jesus for who he really is, you are forced to make a decision. You've got to work out who Jesus really is. And when you see Jesus as his disciples on the boat saw him. You can't just watch and nod and say, yeah, whatever. You need to make a decision. You've either got to worship him as God or you've got to reject him as fraud. Like the great C.S. Lewis who wrote Narnia once said, Jesus is either lunatic, liar or Lord. But if what we saw today is true, then he must be Lord. And since that's the case, who are you going to call? Let's sing.